Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB Managing Editor Medea Ocher and LARB Editor-at-Large Kate Wolf. Hi, Medea and Kate. Hi. Hello. We have a conversation today with writer and essayist Chloe Aridhis about her new novel, Sea Monsters, which I really liked. It's a teen runaway drama with lots of wonderful descriptions of the sea. I wanted to ask one of you if you had ever run away from home when you were little. I did. You did? For a couple of hours. How old were you? Maybe I was, I might have been 15 or 16. Oh, you were grown. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I packed a bag and I walked up to the bus stop. Where were you going? I thought I was going to go downtown to get on a Greyhound to go out to the desert, like to go to Arizona somewhere. Uh huh. But then the bus didn't come. And then I was, and then I, <laughs> and then I thought, I don't really, I didn't have that. I had like maybe I took like a couple, like 20 bucks from my parents mm. on me. And I just, and then I was like, I don't even really understand how to. I just, I was like, this isn't going to work. I just got tired and the reality in my mind, I was like, I really wanted to do it. But when the the fantasy hit the street, it didn't fly. What, how far did you get? Did you, so you got I to mean, the I, bus station? I, no, I like, just got to the bus stop. I oh, the bus even stop say, before like, downtown. I know people who okay. really ran away from home and that's why I probably even, I mean, I left a note, I packed my bag, you know. Did your parents ever find out? And that's the even more pathetic thing. No, they didn't even. <laughs> I had to tell my mom, like, you know, I tried to run away, right? Because she just was like, didn't even see the note. <laughs> it was, the whole thing was pretty ridiculous. But I had a real hunger. And later I wrote some stories about a runaway because it holds a lot mm. of power in my imagination. That's for sure. Interesting. Yeah. Do you ever wish that you had not turned back? Yeah. I was kind of like a hapless person, so I don't know what what would have happened. <laughs> but uh, of course, there's always that question, what, what would have happened if I had just gotten on that bus? Well, maybe we wouldn't have had you to interview Chloe with us. <laughs> that, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah. Mine is even more pathetic because I didn't even get to the writing the note part. I remember I was very young. I was, I think I was like six, maybe five or six. Oh. And I realized that I couldn't do it when I was like, well... <laughs> there's just too many things that I need to bring with me. (laughs) Like I remember laying everything out and being like, well, I need these and I would need this and then I need the sleeping bag. And then I looked at everything on my bed and I was like, oh, there's no way I'm gonna be able to carry all this. And I can't imagine living without any of it. So I was like, this is too hard. I'm not running away. Mm. What made you want to run away? I think it was just a desire for like the romance of it. It's like what you were saying, right? Like, even it's as it's a like, little five-year-old, you felt that. Yeah, I mean, cool. I'm sure I was angry. I don't remember what I was angry about now, but I think I was just angry and I was like, yeah, well, the most dramatic thing I could do is just run away. I don't want to be here. But yeah, turns out not being here was harder than being here. How about you, Medea? Did you run away? No, I never, I never tried to run away. This surprises me because I feel that you were so like out there as a child. Yeah, I would, um, I hope nobody's listening to this. I would sneak out of the house routinely at night. And this is why I But I would always come back. Yeah, (laughs) Um, It just, staying at home and disobeying my parents was much more of a betrayal than actually leaving. (laughs) When you live in New York City, you don't have to run away. Yeah, where would I go? I would have just taken the train to like Lexington or whatever and just come back 40 minutes later. There's nowhere to go. Camped out at the Dean and DeLuca. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Shows you, mom. <laughs> That's right. I didn't have anywhere to run. Queens, Queens was it. But 
I have run away to LA. Oh. Mm. Mm, well, we'll parse that more later. But for now, let's get to Chloe, who actually did run away. And her novel, which is about a runaway. Nice. Let's do it. We're excited to have Chloe Aridis with us today. Chloe is a novelist, essayist, and art critic who lives in London. She is also the author of Book of Clouds, which won the French Prize for First Novels in 2009, and the 2013 novel Asunder. She joins us today to talk about her latest novel, Sea Monsters, a story that begins in Mexico City and then moves to the more romantic and ponderous shores of Zipolite in the South. What we are tracking here is ostensibly the journey of a young girl who runs away to follow a boy going on a somewhat circuitous road trip that eventually brings her back home. But what happens in between those major plot points as Luisa becomes enthralled by Tomas and then bored with him is a by turns lucid and imagistic consideration of desire, time, and purpose. Welcome to the show, Chloe. Thank you. So one thing just to open it up is to talk about the style of this novel, which many critics, I think, have talked about how it kind of seems symbolist or surrealist, so it's not as yoke to plot, but rather to repetition of images and symbols and metaphors. So can you talk a little bit about how you've structured the novel and what you're trying to get at with it? Yes, well, I thought from the very beginning, I wasn't interested in writing a straightforward narrative of Mm -hmm. the one you just described, of a girl running off to the beach. And what I usually do when I start off any book is I have a handful of themes and a rough idea of the arc. And then Mm -hmm. What is the greatest challenge, but also the most interesting part of the project is creating some sort of metaphorical framework where all the different components somehow speak to each other or play against each other. So with this one too, I had that loose story of Luisa running off with Tomas, but then also the Ukrainian dwarves that have defected from the Soviet circus. How could I forget? Yeah, the Ukrainian dwarves that she's also obsessed with. And then ancient shipwrecks, which her interest in that is born from her father's profession classics professor. But I also, I thought a great deal about structure and I did restructure the book many times Mm. over the years, just in search of the right form for it. And I wanted it to be somewhat tidal and fragmentary and some way mimicking movements of the ocean, I guess. And also just having daytime, the fierce Mexican sun and then the bar at night Mm -hmm. and sense of artifice. And then also I wanted for somehow her daily life in Cipolita to echo moments from the city and to have some kind of dialogue between characters and atmospheres in the city, the goth club she used to go to, and then the characters she comes across on the beach. Just to return to structure. So I'm interested. So the book starts at the beach and then goes through how the young girl arrived there. So it goes back her life in Mexico City Mm -hmm. and then back to the beach. And then she eventually returns to Mexico City So there's a kind of remove there because things are happening not immediately, but in recollection. And that seems like a good frame for expounding on different things and memories and nothing really having to happen in that immediate plot-driven way. So is that how you originally, you say you restructured the book many times? Mm -hmm. What are some ways you were first telling the story? In early drafts, it was chronological and it was all about building momentum until the moment she runs off to the beach. And then once she arrived at the beach, there was sort of a slight collapse and it just wasn't working. And I uh-huh. thought it'd be much more interesting to loop back and forth. And then, as you say, it allows much more room for 
digressions and you can go off any direction really and then just sort of return in some way, re-anchoring it here and now and then again, segueing back into the city, then returning. This book took around four years to write. So I was halfway through, mm. I thought, wait a minute, Chloe, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and then it was extremely liberating. And then I introduced quite late on the character of the merman and then her best friend, Julian. Those are completely invented characters. So I brought them in. But other characters aren't invented. Well, definitely not the boy I ran away with because it is based on a real episode in my adolescence when I was 16, not 17, like the character. I wanted to ask you about the relationship to reality in this book, or at least your own life. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? So you did run away with a young man when you were 16? Because of Mexican dwarves. Yeah. Ukrainian, Ukrainian Ukrainian dwarves. Sorry, yeah. because of yeah. Ukrainian dwarves. <laughs> but that was actually an article we saw in the newspaper at the time. I was so, wondering about that too, yeah, if this yeah, was real. It was extraordinary. And we found it in the newspaper, and my father and I, years later, went and looked through the archives, and there was no follow-up ever. And the article wasn't signed off by anyone. So to this day, it's a complete mystery what happened to those dwarves. Or if it was someone having a laugh and there was a small space to fill on the, <laughs> the broadsheet. Right, right, right. Why don't right. we come up with this little story in just these 20 lines? As a quick explainer for listeners, we might not have gotten into this, but the protagonist sees a piece in the paper about a group of Ukrainian dwarves that have traveled to Mexico with a Soviet circus and they defect. And so she's an effectively run away from the circus and she's curious about them. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Ukrainian dwarves. <laughs> yeah. So I had to find a way of bringing them together. So I thought, well, seeing this article gives rise to, I don't know, fantasies of freedom or even orphandom in some way. And even though she loves her parents and you know they're not cruel ringmasters like the circus. And in real life, it was very much the boy who asked me to run away. But I wanted my character to have more agency and it would be more interesting for the girl to say, well, let's run off and see what happens. And how long did you stay on the beach? Around five days. Although it seemed to turn off. <laughs> really. <laughs> Most things do when you're younger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I found fascinating, both because I've read a lot about goth culture in mm. Mexico City have you? and the love of Morrissey in particular, which mm -hmm. I always find very bizarre and weird <laughs> and a kind of emo aesthetic. But so since it is partly drawn in your life, can you talk a little bit about what goth culture meant to you as a teen growing up in Mexico City and also what it means to Luisa? And also another biographical element is her love of Baudelaire, right? Mm -hmm. Which I know mm -hmm. that you have also spent lots of time mm -hmm. thinking about Baudelaire. So can you talk about those two influences? Maybe they actually map onto each other quite well, <laughs> I think. Yeah, so... The goth club I describe in my book, El Nueve, it was a gay club started in the late 70s, I think in 78, by a Frenchman named Henri Donadieu. And his idea was of, he envisioned night as some sort of cultural enterprise. So it had, there were a lot of drag queen shows and magazine launches and poetry readings. And then they had their noches bugas, which were straight nights. But everyone would converge most nights. And those were the particularly goth ones. And... Because Mexicans already wear a lot of black and you can find skull rings in any market. It wasn't really much of <laughs> Maybe it's not quite the leap that I often think that it is. No. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, skulls of such a metaphysical weight mm. in our culture, dating back to pre-Hispanic times. But goth, I think, there's something about the syncretism between European and Mexican cultures and subcultures and the theatricality to goth and sure. something very Baroque and... Yeah, a certain kind of tension that that kind of aesthetic lent. And for adolescents, it just seemed 
very appropriate and something quite fugitive about it also. Or a sense of the fugitive that sure. Baroque has and goth and the idea that, you know, death is lurking behind mm. everything. Is that also the appeal then of Baudelaire too? Yeah. Is that it's like negativity, that sort of stuff? Yeah. There's, on the flip side of beauty or the picturesque is usually some sort of monstrosity mm-hmm. or ugliness or cruelty. And the French symbolist poets were very important for me when I was growing up. Sure. So for my character, I thought, well, why not? <laughs> the novel is written in such a beautiful poetic register and there's so many really astute observations. And there's also a lot of space given to the novel detail, the kind of magical, like there's abandoned homes. And when talking about political corruption, Louise and her parents call it thermal inversion. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's so much metaphor. And, and I know that you wrote your dissertation on magic, on the place of magic and the 19th century poets. But I also think there's something about being a teenager where you want things in life to mirror what you've read in books. Mm -hmm. Or that's Mm -hmm. how I remember my experience of being a teenager, being so drawn to anything that was kind of odd or out of the way. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, both from writing from the perspective of a teenage girl, but also maybe the need for any person to want that kind of magic in life to the exclusion of other things? Well, I think in her case, in adolescence in general, and because there is, well, looking back at least, a lot of recourse to metaphor and the idea that of endless possibility, but also certain concealment. And so you are looking for adventures or situations that will somehow play out. And because you are, those are the years I feel like when you're really building your imaginary and there's such input from what you read, what you listen to. And those are the years you can act it out in some way. Later mm-hmm. in life, the stakes are much higher. So even her running away, like, it seems like it happens pretty easily, you know. And she thinks about her parents' perspective, but it's, of course, she doesn't totally understand the gravity of what she's done. It's kind of on a whim that she decides to go. Yeah. And that's how it was very much when I did that. And then when I arrived, there was this total collapse of the fantasy. And where am I? And... In the book, some of it didn't make it in, but my main dialogue on the beach was actually with the stray dogs, the beach dogs that would huddle around me because I'd feed them my snacks. And there were five days of acute solitude on the beach where I did think, what am I doing? And all the poetry and music, that just evaporated. I wasn't, <laughs> I was Confronted. coordinates. Or, mm-hmm. you know. But that's mm-hmm. exactly how desire is, right? One of the things that I kind of love about the novel, well, one of many things that I like about it is how it, articulates how we move forward through desire. So desire is this kind of constant experience and oscillation of allure and like Mm -hmm. mystery and Mm -hmm. I don't know what this is, whether that's a lover or a new idea, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then when you arrive at that thing or you spend time with it and you're familiar with it, it suddenly is the emptying out of all real desire for it because it's Mm -hmm. no longer alluring. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that as something that Louisa also seems to be processing in the novel is that it's like something that seems really like worlding and exciting and then suddenly is not? And then what are you left with? Is that all that life is going to be? A series of being alert and then disappointed? Well, I think she definitely thrives off of that tension. Mm. But I'd like to think that later in life, she, will, she won't be just left with the hollow of a fantasy. But I do think... I hope the- that's what happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Well, on and off. TBD. Yeah, 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 TBD. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those years, thinking back on adolescence, one is just this mobility of desire, this constant mm. mobility of desire that one week 
you like someone and you think the world will end if nothing happens yes. to him and then next yeah. week someone else. And you're just constantly redrafting your fantasies and updating them. And so Tomas was very much based on a real person. The Merman was actually is more the incarnation of later fantasies in my, my life of Eastern European intellectuals. Or, mm. You're very silent, <laughs> brooding Eastern European. So that was just, yeah, that was imposition of fantasies from later in life. But I thought at the end of the day, and because she's very interested in the Soviet Union and that sort of Soviet imaginary and closed systems, like the, just the idea of the Soviet Union is a very closed system, but then the cosmonauts and the circus performers and these characters who somehow defy gravity and make themselves known to the rest of the world through their professions. I was actually curious about that. I mean, personally, I'm from the Soviet Union, but oh. what is it about for her? I mean, because there was an interesting juxtaposition of an interest in politics mm -hmm. where she is interested in the Soviet Union. She's interested in these defectors and they really fascinate her, but she seems somewhat removed mm -hmm. from the politics of Mexico mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. There's an instant where a waitress sort of asks them what they think about the current political situation mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. both she and Tomas are just, they mm -hmm. are not engaged. And I was curious about that. Why that distance from one's own personal circumstances and an mm -hmm. interest in this other political entity? Well, I wanted, it was a very conscious decision to not make her overtly political or not. In earlier drafts, I had much more about the 1988 mm -hmm. elections. And I thought, well, this isn't really the sort of book I want to write. And I'd rather just intimate things or have them there and sort of allude to the possibility that maybe at home it was spoken about. Or she's an awareness of it, but not having to somehow foreground it too much. For instance, the allusions to the earthquake from 1985, which really did shake up civil society in a major way, and the ruins that the earthquake left behind. And well, in 1980, of course, was just the Chernobyl, and just this idea of crumbling systems or a complete loss mm -hmm. of faith in authorities and much greater awareness of, of manipulation and also of obfuscation which after the earthquake also happened with Miguel de la Madrid, total obfuscation. And it took, civilians were helping hunt for survivors. And so this idea of also just mistrust and disillusionment with authorities and with those decisions of how much, how much to intimate and just mm -hmm. express very subtly, but then hoping that your thoughts or points will still come across somehow. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Chloe Aridhis, author of Sea Monsters. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So, I have Johanna Feitman on the line with me today. Um, her latest book is Last Days at Hot Slit, the Radical Feminism of Andrea Dworkin, which she edited with Amy Shoulder. Johanna, you are here to recommend a book. What book are you going to recommend? Well, I kind of wanted to offer a counterpart or a complementary work to Last Days at Hot Slit, which is a book called Angry Women. It's another collection, but um, an anthology with interviews with different writers and artists. It was put out in 1991, the same year that I uh, actually discovered Dworkin. I also discovered this book. And it became a really formative, fundamental text for me. And there's 
interviews with Kathy Acker, Susie Bright, Wanda Coleman, Sally Export, Saul Hooks, just to name a few. Wow. And yeah, I'm holding in my hands like my fifth copy of it because I always get one and give it away to someone. And how did you discover it? I can't exactly remember, but I think that 1991 was sort of the start of Riot Girl, which mm-hmm. is the punk feminist movement I was involved in. And it was definitely circulating the scene along with zines of, of lesser production values. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And is there, is there an interview in that book that you particularly love and that you feel yourself drawn to? Gosh, I mean, I read it cover to cover and it all sort of blew my mind because I hadn't been exposed to these kinds of ideas. And I would say that, you know, I read everything I could by Bell Hooks and Kathy Acker. So those are certainly influential. And I've gone on to write about some of the artists in here, like Carolee Schneeman and Valley Export. So I can't really overstate the (laughs) reverberations of this book in my life. You know, I I sort of keep coming back to it as representing a moment of feminist awakening or something like that. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like it opened up almost a whole whole new world. Yeah, Yeah, it really did. It really did. Okay, will you tell us the title of the book again? The title of the book is Angry Women, edited by Andrea Juno and V Vale for their series called Research, R-E slash Search. It's issue number 13 of their magazine, which is kind of more like a book. Thank you so much, Johanna. Johanna's latest book is Last Days at Hot Slit, The Radical Feminism of Andrea Dworkin, which she edited with Amy Shoulder. Thank you again. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Chloe Aritis, author of Sea Monsters. Something I did notice is that she is a very keen observer of class distinctions. And I was wondering if that was also a personal touch. We see the various sort of class differences between the people that she lives next to, her own family, Tomas, the people who sell things on the beach. Was that part of your own experience? Were you aware of class growing up? Very much so. And because I'd spent my childhood in Holland and arrived in Mexico when I was around eight, and now when I go back, of course, because I've been living in Europe for so many years, I'm very struck by it. And and still this hierarchy that's just so embedded in the society. Mm. Mm-hmm. That wasn't even a conscious decision. That just, my character just noticed those things. And and I guess I probably felt strongly enough that it, they had to be. So, Did you run. think about those things when you were when you were younger? And how did you think about them? Well, because in Mexico, almost everyone has a servant, a maid. I don't know what. Like a kind of yeah, housekeeper, housekeeper, housekeeper. Yeah. figure, but who's also sometimes involved with the family. Yeah. yeah. A housekeeper. So for instance, for... The past 20 years, there have been two sisters who've been living with us. We're extremely attached to them. They come from a village, neighbors, my father's village in Michoacan. But it still feels strange to go home and have your bed made every day and be 
have all the meals prepared and I'm not used to it at all anymore. So yeah. there is, it has taken on a, almost a foreign aspect. Aspect. Yeah. 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 I'm wondering if we can talk about, I mean, your family is quite incredible and I imagine may have been quite difficult to grow up as an artist under all of that influence. So your father, as um, many people know, Omero Arichis, Arichis, sorry. Um, <laughs> and he, so he's a very celebrated poet. Your mother is a celebrated environmental activist as well as a translator and your sister is a celebrated filmmaker. What was that like growing up? I mean, on, on the one hand, I'm interested in this with regard to sea monsters because it is about an adolescent, a very creative period in one's life. But for you in the real world, that was lived, I imagine, under like a certain amount of anxiety about ability, given like the achievements of of your father in particular, but also both your parents. So was that was it competitive? Did you feel like you were having an adolescent struggle for your own voice, or was it just a kind of artist family utopia? The final. Okay. <laughs> I was extremely fortunate. Mm. Of course, I leave now, live now in a state of constant guilt that, of making sure that I live up to it or that, sure. I, that all the support that I had from a very young age. But I do think that that's probably why I spent my 20s in academia and why I put off mm. writing until my 30s. Even though my dream was from quite early on to be a writer. And okay. Because my father writes in Spanish, I decided, to, and also because my mother's American, I grew up very much bilingual. But I decided also, I knew I, was, I would write in English when the time came. But spending a lot of time in academia was a way of putting it off, deferring that moment, mm. I think. And, mm. and it wasn't until the years in Berlin when I, I felt distance enough, also from those more critical voices from academia. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the right distance. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the atmosphere that you grew up in um, with the kind of writers that you were meeting and how early, you know, like, like your narrator is, is already at a young age processing things at, at such a high level. Um, it seems like you must have been exposed to just so much culture from, from very early on. Yes. I, um, well, my fault, my parents in 1981 and 82 organized two international poetry festivals in Mexico. So many poets came from uh, Borges, Contregras, Ted Hughes, Woznesiansky, Shemesini, Vasco Popa. So it was just meeting all these poets from a very early age. And I was fascinated by them. And actually, Yehuda Michai, I photographed many in our garden. And But that was just, it was even before I knew I wanted to write. Well, consciously. Mm. But I think mm. already it left such a deep imprint. And I thought, I can't think of a more idyllic calling. And of course, most of them were already... Their sixties or seventies, right? Them and do you still find writing idyllic? That's it. I I can imagine growing up as as like an adolescent experiencing that. It's like, oh my god, these people are so in, infinitely cool and like interesting. Do you still find writing to be as idyllic as you imagined it when you were younger, before you were actually like doing it? I wasn't aware of the daily struggle it is, and <laughs> and endless moments of self doubt, which sure. I think they're necessary. Looking back, they're necessary, but I never thought it'd be so difficult. And But I can't imagine doing anything else. So, How do you get through the difficult parts? Well, I speak to my father sometimes, or I return mm. to some favorite writers, or um, for some reason I return to Thomas Bernhard a lot, even though I don't have oh, for solace, but I, there's just a sense of conviction and sort of writerly craft and forward movement. But I, sometimes I just, I, 
I return to my earlier books and just to remind myself of of how it, I suppose, how it paid off all those years of <laughs> right. solitude and constant. That it can work out, yeah. yeah. I wonder what, um, what drew you so instinctively to writing in English that you knew, you know, that that's... That was the language of your, of your literature and the, and the writing you would make. I mean, that is probably a more prosaic answer than romantic, yeah. which is just that because my mother's from here, mm. I grew up bilingual and in Holland and Mexico, I went to American school. So in Mexico, the day was completely half and divided between Spanish and English. But mm-hmm. um, so it's always been my maternal tongue. And at this point, I read much more in English, but um, and it does have a larger vocabulary. <laughs> But I do, but I do. That's what Borges Mm -hmm. liked about it. He thought that English had like a word for everything in a way that we normally associate with German. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the main reason, one of the main reasons is just since I really feel like Spanish is my father's kingdom. And oh, wow. (laughs) When I knew I was, when I decided to have the same profession as him, I thought, well, the only way I can deal with this is to write in a different language. And even though he's written novels too, more or less in a different genre. Or books that are so different to his that, you know, will never be compared, which I would hate. I want to return to the thesis that you wrote. Um, just because of the novel, there's there's lots of instances of people watching things that they kind of like this this uh, wrestling scene where they're watching the wrestling unfold. And he says, you know, she can't believe that Tomas is so enthralled by something um, that, he, that he knows isn't real. Mm-hmm. And just the way... I'm just, just curious what you, you know, if you could give us like a few lines on what you kind of uncovered about magic and 19th century poets and like the show of magic, the mm-hmm. high and low, like why, why, why that was so held a powerful sway then. And if you think it's a same, the same thing now. Mm-hmm. Well, the, for instance, the question of artifice, yeah. you mentioned the wrestlers, the lucha libre, which... Luisa, while she's watching the show, doesn't realize it. But then when he, when Tomas tells her, well, it's all choreographed, she says, well, how could he appear so rapt when he knew the struggle wasn't real? And, I, and, and the other instance of that in my book is what the Morrissey's signature when, oh, yeah, um, I when they're so excited yeah. about it, even though they know in the end it was fake. But, but again, the question, well, artifice can be just as thrilling maybe. And, mm. um, and especially in the case of the, of the Lucha Libre, of the wrestlers, when there's, and the magic trick when it's the spontaneity is there and people go to a magic show wanting to be fooled and they actually complain if, if oh well no there's actually Robert Tudan one of the magicians I wrote about has a famous line saying the fool goes to the magic show ma- magic show and spends all his time trying to figure out how the tricks were done and the wise man just sits back and enjoys the illusion right and it's very much that I think in art in general, that you should just sit back and enjoy the illusion and not spending all your time trying to think about it. But what was another oh, yeah. and then, question? Oh, yeah. And how did you connect that oh. to French or poetry. To, yeah. to poets? Yeah. So my degree was in 19th century French poetry. But then Nerval, who in his madness would walk the streets of Paris and finding symbols and signs everywhere. And so he, he really lived magic in a very immediate, almost visceral way. And uh, Malarmé, for whom... The blank page was a sort of stage or theater, also some sort of illusion. Or, and then Rambaud, his alchemy. So I think, so I was very interested in seeing how the poets of the period somehow believed or practiced a certain kind of magic, whereas the modern magicians of the 19th century, and specifically the two I wrote about, Robertson and Robert, 
Houdan, who both wrote memoirs, it was all about engineering and illusion, and they didn't believe in there was nothing transcendent about the magic they were doing. And, uh. yeah. and how would you connect that to your own writing, just in terms of, it's not, I mean, I won't, I won't say more, just <laughs> <laughs> how would you connect that to your own writing? Wh- which, which are you? Are you the, the poet or the magician? <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard question, Tut. You can cut out the scalp. <laughs> we might want to keep a little bit of pause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'd be hard to ask a question without... Oh, I, know. Or, or, <laughs> I don't right. know, self-important. <laughs> I've never thought about it. Yeah. Uh, really. However well, I answer well, it, it'll seem vain probably. Oh, well, really? I, I don't know. I just, no. I mean, I think it makes sense. Well, I mean, I, I could say which I think you are, but. Okay. Oh, but, oh well, no, <laughs> no, but you, should, you tell us which you think you are. Well, that's a, it. Yeah, it does seem like there's a, there's a line between theatricality mm-hmm. and reality mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. all writers play with. Mm-hmm. That you're that you're talking about a little bit when you talk about like the like the different types of audiences that go to a magic show. Yeah. So in some ways, like who is to recast the question a little differently? Like who's your desired reader? Is it one that looks for the ropes and pulleys to see how you've pulled it all off, or someone that just submits themselves to the magic of your prose? Well, definitely the latter. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's everybody almost, wants. Yeah, yeah, we all want to fool others. Yeah. And I'm always I'm surprised that it's now with my third book that there's always in almost every review, even the ones I'm very thankful for, there's always a, at least one line saying there's not much plot or, you know, if you're looking for a plot, then maybe look elsewhere. It's the wrong starting point for, I think not just my books, but for a lot of literature. Yeah. To, if Especially if they're ones, uh, narratives that are powered more by voice or atmosphere or certain you know, interconnectedness of themes or, images. Well, and that's what I think you've done with Sea Monsters, as I was reading it. I mean, it is true in some ways that, like, the plot is there to hold together yeah, a constellation of, yeah, of experiences. Yeah, yeah, but what yeah. is nice is to kind of luxuriate, if I can use that word, in the sensorium that you create, right? And that, I think, is where, like, the heart of the novel is. Yes? Yes. Okay. I'm very happy for readers to approach it. How do you, just as uh, one question, maybe in closing, is um, how do you approach reading as a writer? Can you not, I wonder this a lot myself, is like, can you not help but see the ropes and pulleys and the tricks that are being used? Or do you allow yourself also to submit to just being wowed? I mean, I always try to hold back. and But there are many writers where the writing, you can just see the device behind it (laughs) creaking away. yeah. And I'm judging a, a, a prize now in England called the Folio Prize. So I have to read 80 books mm-hmm. by mid-March, mostly fiction, also nonfiction poetry. And some of the novels I, I admire, and I, I admire the craft, and, and they're very intelligent, and some of them have beautiful prose, but I can just see the machine creaking behind it all. The technical. The technical. Yeah. And just, I can see they're perfectly mapped out and flawless, but almost too flawless. Mm. It's like the the automaton, the chess player. The audiences complained because they couldn't hear the creaking anymore and it was so unnerving. It was this perfectly oiled machine mm-hmm. that that seemed to have surpassed that existence machine and that they actually reinstated the creaking and the sound of it working <laughs> to reassure people that it was um, some sort of artifact of emotion and not... So yeah, I think... I don't search for the device or signs of artifice behind it, but I think... In the best novels, you're not aware of it. Yes, yeah. It just doesn't come up. You're carried away by something else and you're not. But there are many books that 
I've admired a lot, but I have at some stage been very aware of it. All right. Well, I think we will end there. Chloe, yeah. thank you so <laughs> much you. for thank joining you us. Thank you, yeah. thank you so much. And congratulations on the book. Thank you. We've been speaking with Chloe Arifis, author of Sea Monsters. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.